0: Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. This is a change of pace, but I think the change of pace is is interesting for um, a lot of reasons. One of the things we've talked about in the newsletter is um, trying to compare geopolitical interests and, and understanding that they're, they're far more nuanced than Russia, U.S., China, U.S., insert two nations, two states, whatever. There they're, they're are people and understanding how people work and people think, Um, obviously changes the perspective, uh, which is why I wanted to get this guest on, because he has a litany of books, uh, five dozen or more, I think. uh, The one that I've gone through, which is uh, delightful, which is Michael Jordan: The Life. Um, He is, of course, the author, Roland Lazenby. And he, I got to say, Roland, when I was looking at your Twitter page earlier today, you have at Lazenby. You must be like an OG on Twitter to have that handle. So welcome to the show and or were you like the, one of the first users on Twitter to get such a good handle?
1: Well, you know, I had the good fortune to teach college for 21 years, uh, 11 of it at Virginia Tech. And I had a, um, a long run of brilliant students. But one particular guy, Andy Major, came along, uh, you know, about 15 years ago and got me clued in to, to all the social media as it was unfolding. So yes, I was the first <laughs> Lazenby. Oh, I'm sorry, Lazenby, I apologize. Yeah. No, that's all right, it's no big deal. Uh, believe me, it's, it's been pronounced so many ways. Jack Kent Cook, <laughs> the owner of the Lakers and then the Redskins told me once long ago that I didn't know how to pronounce my own name. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I was one of the original the original lazy on twitter many years ago
0: well there we go yeah and i see now look at it it says you've been there since march 2007 so quite some time okay so let's talk a little bit about um and you can i i have read uh, jordan the life i say read i listen to it on audible which is a fantastic listen as well um thank
1: you good that audible book does very well
0: yes it's, it's it's a great one and we'll be sure to to post it so people can go check it out um so one of the things that I find interesting when I'm reading a either an autobiography or um, one like a story like you've, you've presented here is it's almost, I don't want to say the irrelevant details, but it's sometimes I've I found that um, what fascinates me is kind of the subtleties. Um, and, and, and And it kind of shapes a little bit better the perspective of you know who this person you're trying to study is uh and you do a good job and i'm trying to think there's one story particularly where um i can't remember exactly how it pans out but they drop some biscuits on the floor or they drop some pancakes on the floor at the at the shop oh, in, in the George yeah, store right. um and, and, I, and stories like that that i think are really helpful to shape the perspective they they kind of uh widen your perspective of the characters uh, of who you're learning about so just kind of walk us through um first off with the Jordan one, again, that's what I know most about is there was a lot of historical research that you did into Jordan's family going back a long period before Michael even come on the scene. Um, what's that process like? Um, how do you, obviously you can't include everything. So how do you kind of go through the process of building out a, a book like the Jordan book or the other ones that you've done?
1: Well, you know, um, it it really is something that I grew into writing biography. I did a biography of Jerry West mm-hmm. for ESPN Books. And I did that about 12 years ago. I started writing it. And my old man was from southern West Virginia. He was uh, an old two-handed set shooter. Back in the early days of basketball, and he idolized Jerry West, and so I wanted to tell the cultural story of Jerry West people, and that that went back four or five hundred years mm-hmm. because he Jerry West was actually um, related to the colonial governor of Virginia, Lord Thomas West, I believe, oh, wow. who was Lord De La War, Delaware, Delaware State, Delaware Indians, and oh, wow. Jerry though happened to be a branch of the family that one of, one of the descendants got kicked out and had to go over to West Virginia, which was a godforsaken place. <laughs> and had, and that branch of the family became dirt-scratching hillbillies. Mm-hmm. And so their, their story was uh, fascinating. And um, I had spent a lot of time with Michael Jordan doing various bulls projects. And Jordan was the first uh, African-American male to really be seized up by the sports merchandising industry, and to sort of made into this global fashion icon. Equipment, shoes, underwear, whatever, you name it. Whatever Jordan touched turned to gold. He had this perfect timing. But that meant in a lot of ways, they had to disconnect him from his African American heritage which was sort of my way I you know I black lives matter wasn't on my mind I didn't think about it then but I really wanted to honor all the people I don't think any of these stories these these stories of these the athletes I write about I'm writing a book about Magic Johnson now I did a book about Kobe Bryant after the Jordan book but they are large global icons Mm -hmm. in this era in which we live. And these are black power stories for a a lot of these things. And I told them that way, but it also came out of my experience as a white Southerner, knowing lots of African-Americans, my friends knowing their parents uh, knowing the story somewhat when none of us in this country really truly understands the story of race
2: mm-hmm. and the
1: horrific nature of it in this country. But I knew enough of it to know that um, just like I wanted to honor Jerry West's people who were perfectly good people who could do anything they wanted if they weren't restricted by culture and uh, prejudice and whatever. I wanted to make that same statement about Jordan's, uh, family, his people, the, and the difficulties they came through. And I, I don't think that Michael Jordan would, well, first of all, um, you know the the book there begins with his great grandfather. You speak right. of a Dawson Jordan, who was an only child, who had um, an only child, and so this is a very precious and narrow chain of custody mm. of the genetic strain that becomes Michael Jordan, and the the whole story um, it, it's not built on well there there is some titanic injustice in the in the story of race in north carolina but it's not built on the titanic injustice done to the jordan family per se that I, that that kind of uh injustice was done to to all african american families first by slavery then by sharecropping Mm-hmm. which meant that we had generation after generation after generation that had zero equity in their lives. And that's not just my statement. I, I spend my days going through uh, census records mm-hmm. decade by decade, looking at, uh, you know, back into slavery, all the way out, looking at these families and looking to where that you come to that line that looks at their worth. Mm-hmm. And it's always blank and empty for all these black families. Now it's not tremendous even for the landowners, uh, the the people who are who are engaging the sharecroppers. In other words, um, but it's uh, it, it t- really tells the story of race in the 21st century. You 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 take a people. By designation of their skin color, um, you make it impossible for them to build any equity in their lives. And, you know, that's not my opinion. the the state of North Carolina, the Board of Agriculture did a report in 1922. They interviewed 10,000 farmers, black and white sharecroppers, and they pointed out the whole system had been failed forever nobody had ever made any money from sharecropping and it was really just sort of a a new way of enforcing servitude and extremely low wage.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the, the slavery aspect we had on a guy um, who is a U.S. citizen now served in our military for 20 years but he's from Nigeria originally um, and I was talking to him about I'm, I'm going through I'm not reading it cover to cover because it's uh, it's set up nicely where you can kind of hop in and out. But I'm uh, going through Africa, uh, a biography of the continent of Africa by John Reader. And it talks about, uh, I've been reading about uh, the, the, the section where the Portuguese uh, go down and begin to acquire the slaves in Western Africa. And, you know, one of the things that, that kind of struck me about that um, was, you know, often in, in 2020 or whenever you know, modern day is what you, you talk about, well, um, okay, they were enslaved in Africa, and so they were sold over here, so it 's kind of this kind of a wash and, and I kind of was reading through kind of what was happening um at least from uh, this this author 's perspective and I, I thought you know one of the narratives that kind of gets missed in the slavery discussion is you know if if today you' going to be enslaved um, well you 'd much rather be enslaved in the u s than you would in China, even if the economic conditions were reversed because we speak the language, we know the land, we know the customs you know, and so um I think that's one of the things that I've kind of been dwelling on and, and trying to kind to understand how some slaves would would interpret that um obviously there would be a, a variety of opinion but it's it's almost hard to quantify um what that experience would be like because we you know even if you went to China today you at least have some understanding of what China's like whereas back in you know 14 15 1600 1700 1800 you know that, that was kind of a <laughs> you know you, there was no uh, iPhone, sending back pictures or, or Google. You or do
1: picked up and taken to another universe.
0: Yes, exactly. And, that, and some of the stories they talk about were... Um,
1: That's why uh, they call it a foreign country. Right. <laughs> we, right. We have no real grasp of it. Right. That's why we're all ducking coronavirus right now because, uh, you know, cultural differences have brought all kinds of wonderful things. They've also brought... Throughout human history, all sorts of plagues and difficulties. And so. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I, but, you know, ba- uh, basically, um, you know, we have corporations today. It's very few corporations that have a moral component. Hmm. They have a legal component. They, they take great care. And I've been a corporation owner for almost 40 years. So, um, but they try to do what's legal. And they try to stretch what's legal where they can sometimes. But it's not like a lot of corporations, they may run around doing moral things, but usually it's for public relations, i.e. to help them do more commercial activity. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the more I looked at slavery, I, I made some startling discovery recently as I was looking at all these census records and looking at the economics of the abellum south you know an acre of land was about a dollar mm. and so it was a lot of money right and you know if you had two thousand dollars to own two thousand acres that was a pretty amazing thing but it was still pretty much worthless unless you had the manpower to do it and so when you think about it you know i was looking at the prices of slaves you know in a certain Healthy males uh, in 1850 were could run as much as $800. In other words, one healthy slave is equal to 800 acres of land. Think about that. Wow. Now, land back then was valued differently. We had a much smaller population. and mm-hmm. But the way this land became valuable was the labor. Uh, and of course, being a slave, you, you had no equity in your lives
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, sharecropping just became a means of continuing to make the land valuable without having to pay pay the living wage. And uh, so it, it's really an economic system that you can look, go through census records And look at a a white farmer in eighteen sixty and he's worth eight, ten thousand dollars. He's got two thousand acres of land and ten slaves. There are a lot of small slave operations like that. Not everything was a giant plantation by any means. And then after the war, his net worth had dropped eighty percent. He went from ten thousand to to 2000. He still had the land. He just didn't have the slaves. That place. Yeah. And so the morality we have over slavery was really the morality of corporations. They don't care they're going to do what they do because they are entities designed to make money. And uh, slavery was designed for profit. And the war was over getting a portion of the country that got its profits from agriculture and whatnot to give up it, its means of profit and its profit base. And um, now both sides had some concern for humans. And obviously the, the abolitionists had great concern and they drove the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, that eventually helped lead to war to to stop the practice of buying and selling human life. But um, the thing that sustained it was the thing that sustains everything we do in our corporate lives. And that is the making of money.
0: So one of the things that just uh, real quick on the, on the balancing of, of stuff like this, and we'll, we'll we'll move a little bit further down into, into Jordan's life, um, is if you go and you look at you know, some of these historical um, documents uh, or biographies or whatever it is, what you'll find, and, and that's part of where we're going to go on my questions about some of this Jordan stuff and how you balance this out, is that you find things that are contradictory. And obviously, if we were to examine our lives from the outside, we would find things that would appear to be contradictory, uh, at least to the outsider. Um, how do you go about... Um, whether it is trying to understand, um, you know, how to put together the story or how to tell a balanced view of the story, or maybe you have to ignore one side, because uh, we're all on some level riddled with um, uh, maybe contradictory thoughts, at least from the outside perspective. And in in our perspective, either they're contradictory or we can rationalize them away, or maybe they're not really contradictory, they just appear to be contradictory. But how do you go through that? Because there are some stories in there, Um, especially around, uh, Jordan's, uh, mother and father and, and some of the relationships with the kids and stuff that, that, seem seemed to be, um, kind of hard to understand how those family dynamics played out from the outside looking in.
1: Well, you know, um, I, I have some codes I go by. Number one, what is human? Mm -hmm. Number two, what is a great story that people are interested in (laughs) hearing and reading and learning about listening to?
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Number three, uh, and not in any particular order, they all sort of are like one A, B, C or whatever. But um, trying to determine the fairness and accuracy of what you're doing. Uh, When you're a biographer, you weigh all kinds of sources. Uh I I pour through census records. Uh I I just try to look at the fact. You know, um I, I read uh, you know, I, I read a lot of military history. I just read uh a, a history of a church in North Carolina from 1830 to 1860, uh this church there near where uh, near in this rural area, and it was all rural back then the uh, the slaves and the free blacks and the whites all went to church together, and they kept a running record of the church, you know, and it was, I think, a Baptist church. They, they didn't uh, allow dancing, and, you know, they would throw various people out for this or that. But, but, you know, obviously they had a community there. It was written from a white perspective, so you you couldn't really get what the black people were thinking. Right. But then then I came to 1860. And all the Blacks abruptly left the church. And even the free Blacks went over to a local, um, uh, to a local plantation where the Blacks started holding their own services. And so that's a fact. It's there established in the record. The white people in the church were upset that the Blacks had left. Obviously, uh, because they made note of it and they made various requests in the notes to get them to come back, and they did not come back. And, of course, that area was particularly – that county in particular seceded from the Union before South Carolina. And so you can imagine that there – obviously, in North Carolina for my studies – There was a lot of excitement in the air leading into the Civil War. The rebellion was a big deal, and they were happy to have it. This fight had been building. It's sort of like all the gas building in this country now. Now,
2: we're we're
1: not at a time in our history, at least I hope not, where we're prone to a shooting war. Mm -hmm. But in that era, the same kind of gas built up, and the animosity built up. It was it was obviously much more regionalized than now. And it built up and built up and everybody said, No, we're gonna we're gonna draw blood, we're gonna fight this thing out. We're happy to do it. We we enjoy we're gonna celebrate this. This is a party. This war we're gonna have is a big party, and we're gonna have a jubilee over it. And and so you could you put those two facts together. And you can sense that it was never easy for African-Americans to feel any kind of comfort. There, there was so much difficulty first in 1850. There were 40,000 free blacks in North Carolina and 50,000 in Virginia. And that sounds like a wonderful status, except those were miserable people. They had, They had their freedom, but... They, they had to go hide somewhere because it, 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 they just had no good relationships. But, but the point is, uh, in, in the other histories I've read, and these are histories from the time, it became apparent to blacks early in the process of slavery that they needed to join the Christian faith.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was their only means of controlling white people. They discovered very quickly that white Christians were much more uncomfortable stripping naked a fellow Christian and beating him severely. And uh, now as a people, there was a generally good level of spirituality in all races back then. And that included the slaves brought to these shores, but they quickly moved in and, you, you know, they, Everybody wants to uh, really play on this white superiority thing. Uh, I, I don't think it has anything to do with superior intelligence or any of that. And I don't believe that in my heart in any way. I, I just think when you come over buck naked in a slave ship, you, you're not in any position to establish anything. And so they took the only thing they were allowed and turned it into their one power. And so um, none of this would I ever have found in a college course.
2: Mm-hmm. This
1: mm-hmm. is the product of my research. And, and so I like that I write about basketball. I've written about it for years. But a uh, this is not a world with no stump root. And we don't understand ourselves until we understand our history. And I'm just talking about the histories taken straight from the from the census records and the, the facts available that are obvious.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh and, and the written histories from the era. Uh, you know, for the longest time, neither black nor white wanted to really look at. The history of race in this country first of all we didn't know what to do with it
2: mm-hmm.
1: who's going to pay for all this criminal mayhem who's going to pay for all the rape robbery and murder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know certainly you know uh the southern white males were just beside themselves with the idea of a white woman being with a black man but that wasn't who was doing all the i mean that's not where the power structure was that's mm-hmm. not where all the um the sexual misconduct was going on. The sexual predators, to a huge degree, obviously, were uh, Caucasian, were slave owners. And so um, it's an ugly thing. And that's what, not only are we in a pandemic, we are in this time of bearing the american soul we don't have a complete look at it but that foot on that guy's neck on mr floyd's neck you know we just sort of glimpsed a little bit of it and it's not something we've wanted to talk about but it's funny how timing is
2: Mm uh
1: and the timing of this is uh you know, and that goes to another lesson in biography. I was sitting down with Jordan in 2008 and asked him about his own life. And, you know, one of the first things he said was timing is everything. And there are many reasons he became the figure he did from a, uh, just an average teen in North Carolina in a lot of ways. But uh, in addition to all of his talent, he had this perfect timing. And uh, one of the things that you really have to look at as a biographer is the chronology of everything. The timing of when things happen, which helps explain why they happen and how they happen. And so all of those things, uh, it's a long rambling answer to your question, but all of those things fall into my value system for making these, these decisions. More specifically, the stuff about Jordan. I, you know, I had so many sources, but one of the most important was the book his sister wrote, which was a very painful book in my family's shadow. And it was, I mean, no one in the media was uh, willing to write about it. It was ignored. And it came in the wake of James Jordan's death. The family was torn with grief. I didn't know what to do about it because my first reading of it was, this is a woman in a lot of pain. She was a grandmother by the time she wrote it. But I looked at her account of the family and it was an accurate and balanced and pretty solid account. I still wasn't sure I was going to use it. First of all, Michael Jordan had been great to me for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was pretty sure that if I used it, he was not going to be pleased. And you know, nobody <laughs> wants to displease right? A guy like Michael Jordan. But <laughs> I was down at the UNC library doing research, and there was her book on special collections. And my own instincts that the book was an important and good book, I uh, I felt, you know, I was an old police reporter, a crime reporter, and she was basically reporting what she felt was a crime. And so I, I don't tend to want to base my decision on that on somebody's popularity.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I I think you have to sort of look at the facts, what supporting evidence there might be, um, all those things. And so I did the evaluation. I decided I was not going to hype it. I've never hyped it. I do answer questions about it. But you're reading along in that book, you're listening along, you have no idea this is coming. Right.
0: Right. No, exactly.
1: And it's not It's not part of the promotion for the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something I drag out. Nope. I, I deal with it. You know that allegation is there. And my point, the only takeaway I could have from it is that the mere allegation is enough to destroy a family. And so really, in a lot of ways... Um, and this was true in my Kobe Bryant book and true in the Jerry West book. The the family traumas are so great. Quite often, these great athletes, these great, and I'm writing about really intense competitive minds. Right. So that's sort of. But they they do what they do despite these events.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And with these events, there's no question. Jerry West played with a tremendous anger his entire life. No one knew it. He was a, a gentleman of the Southern App- Appalachians. and But it, it, his whole thing was anger. And he hated his father. And he got mad at me over the biography I wrote about him because his father had been dead 30 years. And I, I treated the guy with nuance. Mm. And Jerry hated him. And the rest of his siblings wanted me to give him a fair. They had a different view of their father. Jerry had a very negative experience. And so none of these things is a very happy thing because all of these people, these great competitors, often operate from a great store of anger. And it's not a simple anger. It's often very complex. And so, um, I, I, you know, I don't know if I'm correct or not in my approach. I am yeah, let me I'm just doing let me, what
0: let me, I'm doing. Yeah, let me reject it because the way that you, and I'm not going to give away the, all the details of the story, people can go by the book and uh, listen and read for themselves. Um, but the way that you handle that, it left me wondering, and that's, and, and, and so obviously I don't, this is the first time we ever talked. So I, don't, I don't know you personally. Um, and, and but that's but there are things like when I've uh, gone through Grant's biography or memoirs or whatever it is, uh, there's things that he would say that, that leave you wondering, and, um, and and those are the things that that I, I, I appreciate. They're, they're frustrating because you want all the answers, obviously, but there are those are the things that are, are that are appreciated uh, at least by a reader like myself because you go, okay, huh? He made that point, and then later on, he's going to talk about the the role of the mom and the dad. You know, you go through the book and it's like that really didn't come up again. Like how, how did they get through that? Like, is, is this, is this, is this a real conversation that happened? Like you start wondering, not, not questioning what you're saying in the book, you start thinking about it and that's your answer to go through the slavery and all that stuff, all that stuff I think is, is fantastic. Because when we cover, um, you know, if you're talking about, you know, Trump or whomever, what insert current political figure here, um, you know, we, we all have a perception of what we think of those persons, good, bad or indifferent. Um, but there's also a lot of nuance and things that we, 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 we really struggle with if we're being honest to try to balance it out. We want to our perspective, jades us one way or the other. And so hearing you talk to these things is helpful. I think for, for people like myself and other people who are not biographers, because once you start to realize when you try to tell a story um, like you're trying to tell with Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or Jerry West um, if you're trying to be faithful, um to to the best you can the story you really find out it's 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 a complicated process and you have to start weighing things out and and this and this another this this. so no, no i i appreciate that and, and this my take on the story was is um was like i was kind of caught off guard as you said you weren't <laughs> it wasn't building up to it and then you left me wanting more uh because i was like well not not that i want the the, the details but just like okay well, wait, wait what just like we, we back that up like did i hear what i thought i heard i did I, the conversation in the car i backed it up like did i is that what i heard yeah that's what i heard okay huh and then you go on and the next conversation happens and you kind of go on about it and then uh you know the the next thing i know we're sitting down with nike talking to nike about what's going to happen and and you kind of play the power dynamics there and i'm like this but that lingered in my mind going like huh i wonder how they dealt with that and then that's the mom and the dad and of course as you mentioned jordan um and anyone at the highest at highest level of success is a, is a fierce competitor, and they have a, the ability to, to view the world differently than guys like me do. For sure,
1: um, probably ninety percent. On the other hand, they they view it just like you do. They're very human.
0: So so what? Okay, actually, help, help me out with that thing because you know if you watch Jordan's Hall of Fame speech, um, I always tell people. I always say this about, uh, especially, I use NBA athletes because they're they're pretty well paid um, and, and they're fierce competitors, whereas Major League Baseball is paid more, but you don't really see the competitive spirit. But, um, you know, I always joked around. If I was LeBron James, uh, me and him were the same age, plus or minus a year. So if I was LeBron James um, and I would have been given a $90 million contract from Nike at 18 years old, I probably wouldn't have been as successful as a basketball player as he would have been. Right? I, I probably would have been like, I got I would have been done.
1: dead in six months. Was that? I would have been dead in six months. <laughs>
0: right, but people don't think about that—that that the complacency that would come in—and I don't know uh, enough about LeBron James' uh, upbringing to know. I've
1: done a lot of research on LeBron James and spent a lot. I've been day drinking with his uncle in Akron, for example. <laughs> so. Uh, but he wasn't. He, he was
0: extremely wealthy coming up. I don't know where he how where he came at on the on the scale. But I'm just simply saying he wasn't like it wasn't like it wasn't, it's not like Bill Gates' son gets ninety million dollars. You're like, oh okay, well you know I'm kind of used to it. For LeBron James and for everyone listening to this show, that is generational wealth that you've got. All you gotta do is just show up to practice, and you don't have to make a shot. Just show he, up,
1: right? He got a couple of friends uh, when he signed that contract and went to an Ohio theme park for the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And he, this is a kid, the big moment in his life, at age 12, he got to move into public housing. Mm. He, his father had my first name, Roland. He was murdered in a card game in 1994 when LeBron was about nine, as I recall. And it, it LeBron wasn't even sure his father was. And really, one of the themes of that book was about fatherless sons. And you know, really not holding up to stereotype because I, you know, I happen to think you can say what you want about LeBron James, but he is the uh, he is the man in the NBA today, mm-hmm. and he has a um, he, he's just done so many things right, and he came from very tough circumstances. And he really has the the personal instincts and integrity. He's, if I write a book about him, it will be about him as the citizen athlete. Now you may not agree with the the citizenry of his part, because he he is an advocate, hmm. but he is. Um, he is a guy fully aware as a citizen and fully involved and also very much into the business of competing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh I, I have total respect for him. I don't get into that. I want to add one thing about biography that mm-hmm. probably needs to be explained more often.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Biography are living, breathing things. I, I, you spend hours and hours and hours poring over the details of a person's life. And you're looking at, you may have interviews with that person, you've read all the material written about them, you've looked at everything they've do, done, not just what they have said, but what did that person do? When did he do it? What are all these things? And so it is really exhausting to go through a person's life. But the book thing comes out and that process doesn't stop because you're going years after you write a biography, you're going, oh, and and you can be going along and suddenly things will occur to you that you can't possibly get it all in your mind and into a book. Maybe someone who is an absolute and total and complete genius, but usually they aren't writing biographies. They're all designing missiles or, mm-hmm. or new social systems or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but my point in this is that really writing a biography is simply telling a story. Mm-hmm. And every time you articulate a story, every time you talk to people and tell them the story, you are learning from those facts. Mm -hmm. And even as you talk about them, you are gaining understanding of the story. And that's not just the process for the writer. That's what's so valuable about the reading process, about the process in these United States, we're theoretically we are all free and independent citizens but we have that process to articulate our narrative over and over and over again and every time we do that we understand it just a little bit better than the last time
0: that's a fascinating point because You know, if I'm sitting here and I want to ask you a question like I'm doing now, I think of a question and then I start trying to articulate the question because I don't write my questions down. And then I go, oh, wait, wait, hold on. Let me, uh, uh," you know, and I can't, I don't word it just right or I kind of stumble through the question. Uh, But if I were to ask it again, I'd ask a little smoother. And then after I heard you answer it, I'd probably say, if I could backup time I would say well okay let me just change this word here let me emphasize this point a little bit more um you don't often think of the so you so when we speak um obviously we've all said something we thought was gonna be really brilliant and as soon as we opened our mouth like oh that did not wow that's terrible now that I said that like woof, <laughs> like <laughs> that's scary that that was my brain um but I've
1: never thought about say brilliantly I- and you'll still have all these thoughts about wow I, I didn't or right. you know, you'll, we all learn from whatever we are trying to tell mm-hmm. people.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I never thought about the biography process as being that. You know, because you, you kind of think of it from the reader perspective: is this is I don't I like the, the definitive is private overstate, but this is the biography the biography of Michael Jordan, and therefore, what this author says is it. And you start reading it, and you're like, okay. And I've never thought about it from the from that side. Well, that's how idea.
1: publishers sell books,
0: right? Right. They right.
1: Sell books as definitive biographies, mm-hmm. and they shove people like me into the corner trying to get every definitive thing they can out of them. Little did I realize that Michael Jordan's timing would be so perfect that we would be virtually shut down with coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And the only thing on the air on sports (laughs) television was Last Dance. Mm -hmm. People were already parsing his life like he was, jesus christ Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and of course has often been the joke that he was black jesus that was earl the pearls nickname but jordan and i refer to this in the book jordan is in many ways the black jesus of basketball whether he's the greatest player or not he's the black jesus of the game Hmm.
0: yeah and so you know the Jordan. Jordan, what's interesting about it for me is so I was born in 85. Um, and so,
1: as was my middle child, my son.
0: Okay. So, we have a probably a, a similar perspective on some of this stuff. So, I remember him winning a title. I don't know if it was his first one or his second one. I just remember I was at a lake that we used to go to, and my dad and uncle had the game on, and, you know, he was winning it. That's kind of my first Jordan memory, as far as I can tell, that, you know, there could have been something before, but that sticks out was him winning either his first or second title. Uh, then I remember him beating the Suns. I say him, obviously. Uh, and I remember the,
1: uh, uh, Huh? You were eight years old.
0: Yeah. So then I kind of remember the, the Rockets and I started following the Rockets stuff, not because I was a Rockets fan, because Carl Malone, who you have a book about, uh, went to Louisiana tech university and that's where my dad and my uncle and my grandfather went. So we followed Carl Malone and the Utah jazz for quite some time. Uh, um, right. and so Which I was a
1: great, great basketball team.
0: Yeah. Right. And so you you talked earlier about timing, um, and so, I w- when I was looking at the books that you have uh, that you've written, I saw the I saw the Carl Malone one, and I'm going to go read that at, at some point. Uh, it's
1: a short little book,
0: right? It is a short one. It's, yeah, I think the Jordan one was like 690 pages or something, and this is like uh, a couple hundred or whatever it was. It was, it was significantly Yeah, I don't,
1: I don't try to to walk my dog on every book.
0: <laughs> but what I, was, what I was thinking about earlier when you talk about the timeline, so if you look at the Stockton Malone era of the Jazz. Their timing was terrible, right? They were a really good
1: team for a long period of time. The timing was great in that they played for the great Jerry Sloan, who had the ultimate competitive standard. He was Mr. Chicago Bull before Jordan was Mr. Chicago Bull, and he understood those two guys, and they were a perfect uh, pairing, or not a pairing, but a, a, uh, a perfect group. Of players, coach.
0: Right. Well, the, the, so the timing thing I was referring to is that you know in the West back then you had obviously the Supersonics that were good for a period of time. Obviously the Nuggets had the Kemba Matumbo, if I remember correctly. Of course the Rockets won two, um, and then um, you know the the, the Rockets then got Barkley later on. So and then the Jazz when they finally got to the finals had to face had to face Jordan, uh, and so you know. Uh, a couple of years before, a couple of years after, maybe it's a different story for the jazz winning a, a title, but that was where their kind of prime and their timeline hit.
2: Well,
1: baseball uh, hadn't gone on strike. What's that? And yeah. Jordan, and Jordan hadn't come back to basketball. Yeah. They'd yeah. probably have a couple of titles.
0: Probably a couple of titles. Uh, but on the flip side, if you look at Jordan, um, kind of where he, when he was growing up and what was going on, um, you know, you talk in the book about Dean Smith and kind of some of the pressures he was facing and just kind of how all that came together. And then, of course, uh, the Nike deal, he didn't want to go to Nike. I think it's kind of a widely uh, understood thing now. He wanted to go with Adidas. And of course, all of those things, um, You, could, on one hand, you want to say, well, all those things were, I don't want to say lucky, but they were lucky as far as the timing goes. But then you don't want to deny all of the work and the dedication that someone like Jordan has. But Carl Malone and John Stockton were pretty dedicated as well. So, so how do you, you know, you talked about that earlier. I, I didn't want to talk back around that. How do you try to tell a story with not denying that timing is important and timing is, you know, we can't control when we're born. So there's some luck to that. Uh, but then also, um, you know, well, okay, well, these guys are working tremendously hard. They're like I said earlier. If if I was given the money that LeBron James given when he's eighteen, I would not have been LeBron James. If I had the t- if everything else was equal, I had the talent, all that stuff, I would have played the. You know, I I can just tell you, ninety million dollars, nineteen, eighteen, Harold, already was, I would have been a bust. Um, So they have something that is their competitive drive is, is there. So they, there is the timing. There's also that drive, that willpower, that motivation. Um, How do you think about that when you're trying to tell these guys stories? Because you can't, you you could be uh, in danger of overemphasizing or underemphasizing one or
1: the other. Well, you know, they demonstrated probably the simple point to me that answered it all. Um, Jerry Sloan told me once, and Jerry Sloan was the kind of guy he had huge hands. He played like a maniac. And he would sit in the dark. Johnny Kerr used to be his. Teammate with the Baltimore Bullets, where Sloan got drafted when he came in, and they'd play one of these games, and he would have been a maniac. and He and Kerr said he would sit in the dark. He'd see him smoking. He'd have glow of his cigarette. He was just so intense. He couldn't go to sleep. He just smoked and smoked. And but uh, when I I interviewed him a good bit, I admired the guy. And he told me something once. I've coached a lot. Um, and uh, I've always thought this is the essence of what, what you have to do. And it's really the essence of the Utah Jazz. And he said, you know, it's a simple game if you'll lay your heart on the floor every night. And th- that sounds easy. But uh, obviously, an awful lot of people can't really put themselves fully into what they do because of fear. They hold back some of themselves. They do not want to know the truth. When I taught college, I spent a lot of time talking about this point. People would have what, quote, what they call dreams, but they are very, uh, they can get very weird about those dreams. They don't want to find out. And thus, they are not going to lay their hearts on the floor every night. They are going to do something else where they sort of keep that dream as a fuzzy companion, but they never really get around to having to answer the things, uh, what becomes the truth about it, uh, you know, their reality. And uh, Stockton and Malone were two guys that, They were so well matched with Jerry Sloan because their only thing was to compete as hard as they could. And if they laid everything out there, they didn't worry about anything else. That was that that was sort of the reward for them. Their ability to get everything they had out of themselves. And I think whatever you say about those two guys and a lot of their teammates. Yeah. Or, or certainly you say it about Jerry Sloan and he created that kind of environment where uh, the, the standard isn't winning or losing. That's important, but the standard is competing. Can you make that commitment to lay it all out there? And I think that's applicable to every form of human endeavor uh, and it, it becomes, I'm a Virginia Military Institute graduate, and we have a big debate right now, and they've really got to get rid of all the Confederate iconography there, but the one thing I want them to keep, and, and why they have to get rid of it is because, uh, I, you know, I, I went there to play football in 1970, and, uh, this is not 1970, Be, Okay. VMI has to get ready for 2070. It has to produce leaders and officers and citizens. You know, that's it's, it's a, a school that has that kind of mission. And you, you can't do that by thinking 1970. Now, the, the concepts of honor and all those things are critical. They have to be preserved. But you're not going to get anywhere waving around a bunch of flags from the Civil War. And so, but on on the arch leading in, which is known as Jackson Arch and has a statue of Stonewall Jackson in front of it, they have this large quote, you may be what you resolve to be. And it says Stonewall Jackson under it. And I, I wrote an editorial for the paper and I basically said, you can haul away all that other stuff. It matters not a whit to VMI, but the quote, it's sort of like the Declaration of Independence written by a slaver. He not only enslaved lots of people, he had sex with a good number of them. And so you don't you got real misgivings about an individual like that. In our culture, he'd be he'd go to jail. Right. Uh, but the things, the words he wrote are the roadmap for freedom. Mm. And so you know, we have to go through and parse this stuff. It's not fun to do. Mm-hmm. But Jerry Sloan was a you may be what you're resolved to be kind of guy. Okay. And uh, it's all about resolve. And I I, I, uh, I just think that always resonated with me, uh, Jerry Sloan and the Utah Jazz. I thought, you know, sports is all a metaphor, they say. Mm-hmm. And it is people apply tremendous uh, tremendous uh, importance to it, way beyond what it is. it's just a ball game, <laughs> but boy, they can sell high price tickets for it and put it on t v and now that we don't have it and that and college football, all of this stuff um,
0: We're up against the clock. So let me just ask you a couple quick questions, and we'll let you go all right. Um if you could sit down with one. What was a basketball athlete that you haven't got to sit down with and talk to, just talk, have a beer with, who would that be?
1: I, I've talked with him a little bit. Uh, he's still alive, but uh, he doesn't like to give interviews. I guess it might be Bill Russell. Okay. Um, yeah. I spent a lot of time with Kobe Bryant in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to have a conversation with him. Uh, You know, I don't think, here's one thing I will add real quick, and I'm not good at short answers. I'm a divergent thinker. I don't come up with one answer. Mm -hmm. I always make lists. For example, when I do an interview, I'll I'll think up 50 questions, then I go back through and I pick the best 10. Mm -hmm. And and so that's how I do books. That's how I write chapters. That's how I organize my life. It's all with divergent thinking, making a list of the of the best possible answers, not worrying about whether they're good or bad, just make the list and then go through and weed it out. And so that list would in, include that. Um, you know, I've got I've gotten to have a lot of conversations. George Mike and Jim Pollard. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, a Louisiana guy that I didn't get to spend time with was uh, Bob, uh, who's a great forward from LSU, way back in the day. Anyway, um, Mm -hmm. I have my mind in Magic Johnson's world now, but he played for the St. Louis Talks. Uh, I wouldn't mind interviewing that guy. He was an incredible player. Figures like that. I have interviewed all the old timers. I did the history of the NBA finals in 1989 and 90. Mm-hmm. And I, I was charged with running around interviewing everybody. So. Bob Pettit maybe. Uh, pardon? Bob Pettit. Bob Pettit.
0: Okay. Pistol and P- that P- would P- be P- interesting. That I would, that names that I would know beyond that. But yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I, I go back. George Mike and Jim Pollard, like I said, I I interviewed John Kuhnla back in the day a lot, but I would love to go back and talk with him. And then on that list, I would add my dear, dear friend, Tex Winter. I had thousands of conversations with him. He's a great coach, a great human being, a real truth teller, not afraid of anybody or anything, uh, not afraid of, the the truth that even indicted himself and i had a thousand conversations with him i i'd put him at the top of the list to have a thousand more conversations
0: for perspective um a book like the jordan book which is 600 some odd pages how long does that take you to research compose write edit the whole package
1: well, I had a good chunk of my life into the Bulls. I, I, right. I went there, to, I wrote a bunch of books about them in the 90s, and uh-huh. spent so much time with them, and did Blood on the Horns about the last dance season. And that's really how I was able to get that level of information to write Michael Jordan Life because I had spent time and interviewed them all many times. And so, uh, even having said that, I, I got the contract, I think, 2009 or 10. And I, I was exhausted twice doing that project before I finally finished it in uh, uh spring of 2013. And it, it was 1,100 pages that we had to get. My editor tried to cut it. He said he could, and I had to go back and try to cut it to 700. <laughs> and it was uh, it ex. I'd never been exhausted before, and I was totally mentally. Physically, emotionally exhausted. Then I had to do the Kobe Bryant book right after that, mm. and I, I I understood what true burnout was. But by the time I got finished with that, I uh, I get sick talking about it.
2: <laughs> okay. Well,
0: so we'll, we'll, well, we'll leave you with we'll leave you with this. Besides yourself, who is your favorite biographer?
1: Gosh, you know I've learned so much from Robert Caro, who wrote the multi-volume set of uh, Lyndon Johnson. I, I consider David Halberstam, the late David Halberstam, one of my heroes. He uh, he wrote a biography of Jordan that was very good. He never got to talk to Jordan for it, but uh, I had press seats with him during the 98 season for the Indiana series, and it's one of the highlights of my life. Those two guys are a pretty good place to start. I have a lot of, I have a lot of famous. Authors, I'd like to talk to. Never have done much of that,
2: though. Okay,
0: all right. Anything else before that you go that you want to? Obviously, you got the bad Johnson biography. That's is that a ways out? Is that soon? Some people should be looking for. It, or... uh,
1: it'll, it won't be out till fall of twenty twenty one.
0: Okay, all right. In in, in uh, between now and twenty twenty one, Jordan, Kobe, what books of your? What book of yours should they read?
1: Probably. Um, but they don't want to read it. Michael Jordan, the life, you get the audio book there. You can, you know, you get, you get what, 21 hours of listening. To that thing. Mm-hmm. It's a, a long book. Uh, the Kobe Bryant book I'm proud of. It's a sad story. I wrote that and finished it in 2016 before he died
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the fall. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, but it, it's a say. It makes me sad, but I, I would say of my books, the Jordan book, the Jerry West book, um, is important in a lot of ways. I, if you like competitive personalities, you know there are a lot, there are a good number of people doing what I do. Um, I just sort of learn from all of them. Uh, who's the uh, Bill Reynolds from the Providence Journal? Has written a number of fine. He wrote a biography of Bob Cousy. I really, uh, admire that book and admire him as a writer. Those kinds of things.
0: Okay. All right. Well, uh, Roland, thank you so much. Uh, again, the book is, um, well put together and I will just say, I won't name it. I read a, uh, a biography the other day and one of the problems I had with it was they talked about this person and then they kind of went through this person's life kind of just kept going through it. And the story was the same thing. Like, this person did this and they did this, they had this personality. All the friends said the same thing. It's like, okay, well you could have just given me like a chapter kind of summarizing Uh, that. But uh, as we go through the story, you kind of nuance things and bring in things. And like I say, it's, it's the, it's the things that aren't necessarily always what you're building to that I find fascinating. I thought your, your, uh, Jordan book does a fantastic job of just kind of dropping things in there that you're like, huh, I wonder, I wonder about that. Or that's interesting. So thank you for your time and for the book. And uh, I
1: thank you so much for taking the time. Very much appreciated.
0: And listeners, we will be back. I don't know when our next episode is probably, uh, next week, I think is when we, uh, come back. And so we will talk to you
2: then.